your afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Rob Port here, 970 WDY AM 93.1 FM. Happy to be with you. Your call-in numbers today, 701-293-9000, is the toll-free number. Email talk at WDAY.com. You can send me tweets, too, at Rob Port. Nateel, how the heck are you? Doing pretty good. Survived the uh, Windmageddon we had down here. Yeah. I think pretty, you guys got uh, way much. You guys must have gotten way more snow than we did. I don't know that we did. I don't, We didn't really didn't get that much. That's not so bad then. Grand Forks so got bad. a ton. Yeah. Well, yeah, they did. They got a ton. Um, yeah, I uh, I missed yesterday. I actually spent most of Sunday night in the ER, uh, Sunday and the wee hours of Monday morning, uh, in the ER with my son. Um, nothing serious to turn out. He fell down and he smacked his head and it was hard enough that we were worried. Uh, and he, he started throwing up too. He, he got a concussion, but, um, you know, they did a CT scan and everything was fine with that. So we brought him back home, but you know, we had to, had to stay with him. And so I, I ended up missing yesterday. So, and I, I don't like missing the show, but I was out today. I'm back in and we got a busy show lined up. Uh, my not daily news editor, Michael Sasser is going to be on. Uh, here at 1230, we're going to talk a little bit about tax reform and all the, the demagoguery, all the, the slobbering at the mouth. I mean, it's just, it's a little funny. I, I mean, if, if, it, if it wasn't such a portentous issue, right, if, if it wasn't a piece of public policy that was important to, to many, many Americans, the antics, right, the, the histrionics around it, I, I think would be funny. Uh, unfortunately, it's a much more serious piece of policy than that, and as it stands, it's, it's kind of pathetic. But, I, And I want to talk more about that here in just a moment. Also coming up at 1 o'clock, uh, David Chapman, he is an immigration attorney from Fargo. He's going to be on. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court upholding President Donald Trump's travel ban, uh, and then we'll do the one debt rundown at 1.30. Now, uh, talking about this, this tax reform debate, uh, and at, at this point, obviously, the House and the Senate have each passed their bills. Uh, the push now is towards reconciliation. That's the process through which the differences between the two bills uh, are reconciled because the House you know, and the Senate versions are not exactly the same, so they've got to go through and they've got to hammer out those differences, and then a final bill will eventually be sent to President Donald Trump. Now, Democrats, both here in North Dakota and nationally, have just been demagoguing. I mean, they have been slobbering at the mouth angry about this thing one of the things i think it's really funny they're calling it the tax scam right why is it a scam well because democrats don't like it it's policy liberals don't like so therefore it must be a scam which is unbelievable i think here in north dakota it's it's particularly acrimonious because i think north dakota democrats know that heidi heitkamp's vote against the reform bill is going to make her re-election in 2018 harder I think that's just a reality. Uh, Height camp, I, 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 I don't know. I can't speak to her calculus. I think Democrats wanted to send a message by having this be uh, a strictly partisan vote. They didn't want any of their Democrats on the other side of this issue, uh, letting allowing Republicans to say that the the bill was bipartisan. So they held everybody in line. Senator Heitkamp towed that partisan line. And I think Democrats know that most North Dakotans are probably in line. They probably like this tax reform bill. And this is going to make it tougher for Heitkamp to get reelected. Now, I, I don't know that the election is going to hinge on this issue. 
but I think it's going to create some problems. And so now we're seeing the Democrats and all their allies out in the media, um, you know, ranting about this. Aaron Crowder, who was Height Camp's lieutenant governor candidate when she ran for governor back in 2000, uh, he's got a letter to the editor of the papers today, you know, saying that it's going to be far from fair to farmers. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But but first of all, for some context, let's listen to some of the things that Democrats are saying about this bill nationally. We have audio. This is House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi speaking on the floor of the House of Representatives in opposition, um, basically to a vote that that would that would send uh, it, it would would be the House agreeing to 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 uh, begin, you know, conference committees, you know, conference basically to to reconcile the bill. This is this is Pelosi, and listen to what she has to say. Let's roll that audio, Natil. I have said that this with stiff competition by some of the other things they have put forth, is the worst bill in the history of the United States Congress. The worst bill in the history of Congress. Well, because it involves more money, hurts more people, increases the deficit by so much more, and just because everything is bigger in our country, the consequences of this bill, a multi-trillion dollar economy, all right, let, yeah, let's 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 cut it off. The important thing that they, she says this is the worst bill in the history of the United States Congress. That's what she's saying. The worst bill in the history of the United States Congress. I pause and reflect on that for a minute because Congress has been around for a while and they have passed a lot of terrible legislation. To say that this tax bill is the worst piece of legislation to pass the United States Congress in the history of the Congress is crazy, like like absolutely insane. I mean, this is a Congress in 1850 passed the Fugitive Slave Act, which basically meant that if, if, a, if an escaped slave crossed state lines into a non-slave state, that non-slave state had to return the slave to their owner. Pretty disgusting piece of legislation from a bar- dark chapter in our nation's history. Yet, according to Nancy Pelosi, the tax bill's worse than that. Tax bill's worse than the Alien and Seditions Act, which essentially outlawed free speech during a war with the French. Apparently, the tax bill's worse than the Indian Removal Act that moved Native American tribes from the southeastern part of the United States along the trails of tears out west. Congress, remember, passed laws codifying Franklin Delano Roosevelt's executive order allowing for the internment of immigrants during World War II. Japanese immigrants, German immigrants, Italian immigrants. Congress backed the president's play. Those are just a few examples. I could keep going, but I think you get my point. For Pelosi to say that the tax bill is the worst piece of legislation Congress has ever passed, is unbelievable, and, and I think illustrates perfectly how unserious Democrats are in their criticism here. Now, coming locally, where the political waters are a little more Pacific, we have Aaron Crowder. Now, Crowder is a high camp ally. Crowder has been fairly transparent about his desire to run for one public office or another in 2018. Uh, he's fresh off a stint at the Farm Service Agency with a federal appointment. Um, he writes a letter to the editor, uh, And he says that tax reform should lift farmers up, 
but the Republican plan is going to drag our agriculture economy down even further. The Independent Congressional Budget Office shows that the Washington Republican uh, tax plan would add a whopping $1.5 trillion to the national debt. And then he goes on basically to say that, you know, we're adding that money to the national debt, and that's going to trigger sequestration cuts, uh, which will in turn, uh, you know, he's assuming will have to come from farm programs. Now, the problem with these, this connecting the dots, first of all, is assuming that there's going to be $1.5 trillion in deficits created. I don't know necessarily that that's the case. Republicans are arguing that this is going to spur enough economic growth that at the very least it's going to be revenue neutral. Are they right? I, I don't know. I don't know that any of us can forecast the economy. The economy is a complicated thing. There's a lot of different variables. The tax code is just one of those variables. There could be other things which cause us not to have economic growth. Which in turn impacts our ability to collect revenues from commerce. So who knows? Who knows? Maybe we'll see more revenues generated as a result of the tax reform and there won't be any deficits created. Maybe we won't. But even supposing for a moment that we stipulate to the idea that there's going to be $1.5 trillion in debt created by allowing Americans and American businesses to keep more of their own money over the next decade, you're talking about $150 billion in deficits per year over 10 years. Now, that's a lot of money, but in the context of our four trillion, roughly $4 trillion national budget, it's a relatively small number. And you're telling me that nowhere in that $4 trillion budget we can't find $150 billion worth of cuts per year? Because I think we can. I think there's plenty of fat in the federal budget that we could cut. And I don't think it necessarily has to come from farm programs either. Although farm programs shouldn't be immune from scrutiny either. But this assumption that there's just going to be this, this, this terrible situation with all this debt and deficit is bogus. To the extent that there are deficits created by tax reform, that can be addressed through spending reform. Which I think we can all agree the federal government needs spending reform. There's plenty of ways they can find it. And that way you and I get to keep more of our own money. We get the benefit from tax reform from a simpler, lower tax code, and we get some spending reform, too. What's so bad about that? And I'm also laughing at Democrats all of a sudden, oh, a, a, a trillion and a half dollars over the next decade. Under the first four years of the Obama administration, when Democrats controlled the House and the Senate, we ran annual budget deficits of over a trillion dollars a year. A trillion dollars a year. They're worried about $1.5 trillion over 10 years. They were running a billion, a trillion-dollar budget deficit every year. Trillion plus. The hypocrisy from the Democrats on this is just enormous. And it's just, it's funny. And, and they're clearly, they, they just, they want to create a storm. They want to demagogue this thing to death because they want to convince you that this bill is bad. But it's not. It's not perfect. But it moves us in the right direction. More to come straight ahead. What do you think? 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Report 970, WDY AM 93.1 FM. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDY.com. Democrats are in overdrive demagoguing this, this uh, tax bill. 
To be fair, it's not perfect. I, here, and here's the problem. I, I think this illustrates with American politics. If we can just zoom out from the tax bill issue itself for a moment. I think that we're best served by honest disagreement, right? I, I, I think we're best served by honest criticism. We're not always going to agree, right? Because we have different philosophies, different priorities. And sometimes people who honestly want the best for their country are just going to disagree on how to get there. And that's that's fine. That's why we have democracy. That's why we have participatory politics to settle those questions. The problem, though, is when politics becomes theatrics. And I, I think that's what we're seeing in the Democratic response. And, and not to say that Republicans haven't been guilty of the same thing in the past. But right now, in the here and now, what we're seeing from Democrats is a, a theatrical response to a piece of policy that they hate. And, and I, I think even more so, it's it's not even just the policy. It's just that they hate Republicans. And they want to be in charge. And so any, any major Republican initiative is going to be opposed by Democrats just on those grounds alone. I mean, I mean it's not even really a question of whether or not the policy is good. It's just that the policy is Republican. And then from there, you get the theatrics, you get Nancy Pelosi saying that this is the worst bill Congress ever passed, which is demonstrably untrue unless you think that the tax bill is worse than bills that backed slavery or bills that, that backed the mistreatment of Native Americans or bills that backed uh, you know the internment of immigrants during World War II. I mean, unless you believe those things, it's not the worst bill in the history of Congress. But Nancy Pelosi is going to say that because Nancy Pelosi is a performer. Nancy Pelosi is not an honest critic. And neither are a lot of the local critics on this that are slobbering at the mouth about the, oh, oh, the Republican tax bill is terrible. It's going to be terrible for farmers. Come on. And, and this is my problem. Like, if you have honest criticism of the bill, then fine, let's hear it. Let's have that debate. But I, enough of this knee-jerk partisan, well, it's a Republican bill, and it's advantageous for Democrats to, to oppose it, so we're going to oppose it. Enough of that. I am tired of the posture. I am tired of people like Aaron Crowder, right, who clearly has political ambitions for next year, who was Heidi Heitkamp's running mate in 2000 when she ran for governor and knows that his good friend Heidi has put herself in political peril by voting against this bill, which frankly is going to be good for most North Dakotans, which frankly most North Dakotans want, which comes from the political party and the president that most North Dakotans voted for. Now he's going to be out there. He's going to play the thing, you know, play the play the game, play the thing. I mean, it's just a performance, and that's what drives me nuts because I don't mind honest disagreement. I don't mind sitting down and saying, well, you know, my priorities are different, and your priorities are different, and I don't like this idea, and you like that idea, and that's fine. I, I like that. Honest criticism, I think, makes us better. I think it makes public policy better. The problem is we're not getting that right now. I think Democrats don't see this bill. It's not even really about tax reform. I think for them, this is an inflection point for the 2018 election. For them, this is about manufacturing a perception of the policy that will be useful on the campaign trail. That's what this is about. Full stop. And it obscures so much of the honest debate 
that we could be having about this. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. I, I just, I think it's really unfortunate. Because I, I, I think if you boil it down and you ask most Americans how they feel about elements of this bill, most Americans like it. Most North Dakotans like it. Should the tax code be simpler? Of course it should. Most people agree with that. Should we have fewer brackets? Yes, most people agree with that. The problem is you start cherry-picking certain things out of a complex piece of legislation, and you start trying to pit different special interests against one another, and then it becomes an exercise in divide and conquer. Which, don't get me wrong, serves the politicians great. If you're Heidi Heitkamp and you're trying desperately to hold on to a U.S. Senate seat, you want it, you want divided North Dakotans. If you're Democrats and you want to take back Congress, you want a divided America. You don't want to have an honest debate about this piece of public policy, because I'm sorry, an honest debate about this piece of public policy doesn't serve your political ends very well. Caller, Ken, you're up. Yeah, quick comment on the tax bill. Uh, first of all, we don't know what it is yet. Um, there's yes, we do. Bills floating around. I do. Well, yeah, yeah. The House has passed a version. I don't know. The House is the House has passed a version, and the Senate has passed a version. And uh, and uh, you know, and, obviously, and Democrats Democrats are citing it's been what scored. It's going to be. We don't know. Um, well, Ken. Well, so, you can yeah, just people ask for advice. Can we mute Ken? Let's know. mute Ken. I am actually reading right now. Democrats are literally citing. That's that's a very nice. Democratic talking point that you picked up on, Ken. That's a very nice one. I, I I realize you probably saw it in email or maybe saw it on MSNBC or something. But yet, the bill's been scored by the CBO. Democrats are, are citing the fiscal impact from the CBO. They're citing it authoritatively. How can we not know what's in the bill when it's been scored by the CBO? How can Democrats claim that they know what the impacts are going to build. How could Eric Crowder be in the Fargo Forum today saying the tax reform bill is going to be bad for farmers if he simultaneously doesn't know what's in it? All right, let's unmute Ken. We don't know. I, until you actually put the numbers on your tax returns, you don't know how it's going to shake down because there's so many variables. So we yeah. may think that your taxes are going to go up, they're going to go down. We don't well, that's, know. That's, that's, that's a case-by-case case basis. The law that's, that's, that's a case-by-case case basis, though. Every, every American's tax situation is going to be different. How could we possibly craft policy for any one given person? So, so somebody saying that this is a good, ball, good bill or a bad bill, you really can't because we don't know what we're dealing with today. Yeah, that's uh, absolutely specious, Ken. That's a, I, I don't agree with you at all. Thanks for the call, though. Appreciate it. 701 Email talk at WDAY.com. The Minot Daily News slammed. Democrats in an editorial on their response to the tax bill. Uh, we'll have editor Michael Sasser on next. This is the Rob Report on 970 WDY AM 93.1 FM. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Report, 970 WDY AM, 93.1 FM. Happy to be with you. 701-293-9000 is your local call-in number, 888-970-9329. Email talk at WDY.com. 
You can email me to talk at WDAY.com. Or I, I just said that. Did I just say that? I repeat myself. You did. I get on a, I get on a roll. All right. Uh, the Minot Daily News, in, in an editorial, pretty hitting Democrats pretty hard on their response to the tax reform. We've been talking about the tax reform issue uh, this hour so far. Uh, in an editorial, the Minot Daily says, Democrat arguments against tax reform are specious at their core, in addition to rhetorically emerging from central casting. Democrats claim no one has had time to read the bill and that the tax plan adds to the deficit. Democrats have no foot to stand on here. They hailed passing a health care plan, now a dismal, dismal failure, that they did not read. And it is caused to mirth for the left to consider the cost of anything government does since it has been decades since they even recognize that the nation has a problem with debt and deficit. Furthermore, the chief leftist argument against any tax reform is that they disproportionately benefit, quote, unquote, the rich. This has always been a disingenuous argument because the rich pay the majority of taxes. How can the government cut taxes, which are paid largely by the rich, without it benefiting those people who pay the majority of taxes in the first place? Guess what? Small businesses and successful people fund the government, not people who have made the life decision to work for the minimum wage. Uh, On with me now is Michael Sasser, editor of the Minot Daily News. Mike, uh, what's the reaction to your editorial, Ben? You know, maybe it's the Christmas season, um, or maybe it's it, it, it's how many of our readers tend to agree with us, agree with us on this issue. But so far, I haven't heard anybody challenge challenge the position. Yeah, well, d- judging by my hate mail folder, it's not the Christmas season. So maybe you just were particularly <laughs> uh, particularly persuasive in your arguments. I, you know, I, I've been talking about earlier I, last night on the floor of the House of Representatives, uh, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi described the tax bill as the worst piece of legislation ever uh, in the history of the Congress, which is is pretty remarkable for an organization that has passed things like the Alien and Sedition Act, the Espionage Act, you know, (laughs) the Fugitive Slave Act, the Indian Removal uh, Act. Maybe Nancy should look where she stood on the Defense of Marriage Act. Yeah, well, maybe she you know, looked where she looked at "Don't Ask, Don't Tell," and then why does why doesn't she go to her liberal colleagues and say, "Hey, wasn't that great the way I signed on for these things?" Yeah, I I, I think that's a good point. But I, is, is the Democratic? I, I've been looking, particularly as I pay attention to our state here in North Dakota, I've been looking at a lot of the Democratic response, and I, I think you could kind of tell where Heidi Heitkamp was going to come down on this bill because her state party on social media were just demagoguing this thing. I mean, just, it's the yeah. worst. It's, yeah. it's, it's terrible. It's hard for me to yeah. imagine Senator Heitkamp then voting for the bill after her own state party got done slamming it. So I think it was pretty much she was voting against it. That was in the works the whole time. Are they doing that because they know that this bill is probably going to be a tough one for her to justify next year during the election cycle? I think so. I, I think more than anything, it has nothing to do with the bill because, you know, Pelosi may say it's the worst bill. Um, I, I doubt very realistically that she's read any of it. I think she was ready with her comments um, uh, before the bill was even passed. I think it's entirely rhetorical. Um, I think it's straight out of central casting. I think it is anti-intellectual. Um, and, um, you know what? The arguments sound exactly the same as they have been against every tax cut in my 50 years of life. There's no thought. There's no intelligence. There's no analysis. It is what it is because this is the line they play. 
it's it's been interesting to mo- watch because I I'm seeing the talking points from a couple of sources. One is Aaron Crowder, who has recently stepped down. He was uh, with Farm Service, uh, the Farm Service Agency here in North Dakota, has has made it pretty clear because there's a cooling off period since he left fed, federal office. Has made it pretty clear he's interested in running for office next year. Was also Senator yeah. Heitkamp's when she ran for the governor in 2000. Was her lieutenant governor candidate. Uh, back then he's out there saying you know it's it's going to be bad for farmers because it creates 1.5 trillion dollar in debt and then that that's going to have to be made up by cuts to the farm program which is essentially the same argument that mark watney with the north Dakota farmers union is making i'm reading here in an article from um from the williston herald he says i quote i'm very concerned about the pot of money we will have available to write farm bills you know, their argument is, is essentially it will create $1.5 trillion in debt, and that will have to be cuts from the farm bill. I, I think they're making a lot of assumptions there. What, what are you making, making these claims? I, I think they're making a lot of assumptions. First of all, anytime a Democrat tells you that they're concerned about the national debt, all you can do is laugh because they've never expressed any concern in the national debt before, and they've ridiculed anybody, any, any economic conservative who's ever complained about adding to the national debt. And second of all, okay, one, $1.5 is based on their estimates of economic growth. If we had an 8% Reagan economic growth, the deficit, the debt would be paid off in 10 years and there would be no deficit. So you're looking at worst-case scenario, and then you're saying it's going to come out of the farm bill. Well, in California, I imagine they're going to say it's going that $1.5 is going to come out of I don't know, whatever is important politically in California, giving free needles to junkies, for example. So here they'll say it's going to come out of the farm bill. So here we are going into a Midwestern rural state's midterm election and then a reelection campaign for a president who dominates the rural community. And they actually think that money is going to come out of the farm bill. What precedent is there for the Republicans yanking a lot of money out of a farm bill in advance of a campaign that starts in Iowa. Well, it, it, it seems unlikely, but the the larger part, I, I, I am concerned as a conservative, I don't want to create deficits either, right? I, I don't yeah. I, I don't think it's responsible to, yeah. you know, have lower taxes today and then put a bunch more money on the credit card for my children yeah. and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to pay off. I, I don't want to do that. Correct. So, I, you know, I, I'm as concerned about the deficit as anybody. But that being said, $1.5 trillion over 10 years, and I'm laughing that we're doing projections as if anybody can project what the economy is going to be doing two years from Correct. now, uh, let alone 10 years from now, uh, or, or even what, you know, what other policy and budgeting decisions we're going to make 10 years from now. But, uh, you know, the, so the idea of these forecasts is a little ridiculous in the first place. But even stipulating all of that, we're talking about $150 billion a year. I feel like there's probably $150 billion in fat in our $4 trillion federal government. Well, I, I, just, I, I think that it would be pretty easy to cut some stupid, uh, some stupid studies on the sex lives of bees um, right. to come up with that kind of money um, every year. I also think that it is a disingenuous argument to talk about what adds to the deficit and to the debt without talking about growth, because growth is the only way out of our economic condition now nationally. It is not to collect more taxes. It is growth. And Democrats haven't had a growth package that they've rolled out since the Kennedy administration. You have to well, get economic growth for these things, these let, things to work. 
let's be fair, Michael. When we were running, you know, trillion-dollar-plus deficits during the first four years of the Obama administration, they had a growth plan, and it was called government spending, right? Remember the stimulus spending? Yes. We were going to spend all Correct. this money on government projects and and windmills Correct. and solar panels and all this this stuff. Cash for clunkers, remember all that? And we were going to stimulate the economy with all that government spending. Now, I don't think it worked out that well, but it's funny to me that that they're concerned about – you know about you know what works out to be about 150 billion dollar deficit. Again, if we agree with their numbers, which I'm not sure we should be, but using their numbers, 150 billion dollars a year. But yet, you know, we had trillion dollar plus deficits for four straight the first four years of the Obama administration when Democrats well, I mean, controlled we're ta- Congress. We're talking about something that is a fundamentally. You, you, you might as well be talking about magic. When you hear Democrats talking about economics, is is that because? Can you name a leading member of, of, of the Democrat Party who's ever held a private sector job? Yeah, I, don't I mean, know. one, just just one who's ever held a job. So I, I don't what know. would they I mean, really know about how the private sector works when you've been working in government your entire life and have enriched yourself in government? You wouldn't really, really wouldn't understand what economic growth is, is to be to begin with. I think it's a priority so, thing, don't you? And, and by the way, people want to join in, 701-293-9000, email talk at wday.com. I think it's a priority thing. I mean, to me, you know, I, I want the government to do certain basic, you know, I want law enforcement, I want court system, I want, you know, military. Yeah. I, I want I want the government to do those things. But mostly I want, I want just a society where people can wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm going to try to start a company that sells widgets. And I'm going to work really hard, and I'll succeed or fail, but my success or failure will be based on me. It won't have anything to do with how much red tape I have to cut through uh, or taxes I have to pay. There's a – this – the proposed legislation, and and, and I'm neither a Republican nor a Trump voter, but the proposed legislation and what it offers to small business tax filers is tremendous. I filed as a small business my entire career for 25 years now. I've – and the hoops that you have to jump through as a small business, you're providing most of the jobs in the country. But the ridiculous burden on small business, some of that is, is, is being lifted. And then when you talk about uh, the opportunity to wake up in the morning and start your own business, um, I mean, you're, you're looking at two diametrically opposed philosophical beliefs on how wealth should be attained. We have the traditional American capitalist view that, hey, I should be able to go out into the marketplace, create a better mousetrap, and as a result of creating a better mousetrap, I'm going to succeed. And then you have the more traditional um, kind of the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party that says, yeah, we like the wealthy. I mean, check the voters' map. The wealthiest voting districts in the country are the most solidly Democrat. Well, there's a reason for that, because – they don't believe that it should necessarily be inspired by your individual accomplishment because that's evil. Wealth should be assigned to you based on fealty to party and fealty to party line. Um, that's why, for example, Nancy Pelosi's wealth doubled under the Obama administration when so many other people well. were, were struggling. It's because they believe that the government should decide where wealth goes to based on fealty to their party and their philosophy. Yeah, or is. should I be able to go out and create a, a, a better transmission? Yeah, it, it is It is amazing how members of Congress can retire 
after years and year decades working exclusively for the government and then retire as as millionaires. Uh, well, yeah, that's that's as much fun as watching millionaire members of Congress from San Francisco, uh, the Bay Area, from Manhattan come on and preach about their support of the middle class. They've yeah. never met anybody in the middle class. Well, maybe they shook their hands once at a stump speech. Let's let's be fair, Michael. Thanks, uh, thanks they, for your time. Yeah, they might have. You were right. Well, we're out of time. Certainly appreciate it. You can read the full editorial at the MyNotDailyNews.com. Michael Sasser, editor of the News. Thanks for your time, Mike. Thanks, Rob. Anytime. More to come. We'll wrap up the hour right after this. 701-293-9000. Email talk at WDAY.com. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Port 970 WDY AM 93.1 FM, 701-293-9000, 888-970-9329, talk at WDY.com. Uh, we're going to talk about the latest with uh, President Trump's travel ban, uh, the Supreme Court uh, ruling that, that that they are allowed to fully enforce it. Now, that's, that's not the last word on it. The Supreme Court is going to uh, ultimately rule on its legality, but the fact that they're allowing it to be enforced for now seems pretty significant. David Chapman, he is a immigration attorney from the Fargo area, is going to be on. We'll talk about what the travel ban even is right now uh because i think that's a fair question it's it's very um it's changed a lot because there's been all sorts of legal wrangling we'll talk about what it is now uh and what the supreme court's likely to do on that uh 701-293-9000 email talk at wday.com um yeah i mean on, on the tax thing you know again if we want to have an honest debate about this is fine I, I think the problem is Democrats have identified this bill as what they want to campaign against in 2018. I, I, I think that that is driving a lot of their reactions to it more so than the reality of what the bill actually is. I think that they want to create a certain perception about it and then campaign against that perception. And what, what's really funny, and we had a caller earlier in the program, say, oh, well, nobody's read the bill. Nobody knows what's in the bill. And I, I think that's hilarious because... That is certainly one of the Democratic talking points. No, Nobody knows what's in this bill. But yet, <laughs> yet Democrats are telling us all about all the horribles that the bill's going to do, right? Oh, nobody knows what's in the bill. Uh, but yet, apparently, we, the CBO knew enough about it to score it. And for Democrats to speak with authority that it's going to cause $1.5 trillion in deficits over the next 10 years, whether or not we should actually believe that or whether or not you can believe forecasts that go out that far is a little silly, but regardless, they do have enough about it to do that. Apparently Aaron Crowder and other, you know, Democrat uh, mouthpieces here in North Dakota know enough about the bill to say that it's going to impact farmers. I mean, how do you, how do you, how can you with a straight face go to the public and out of one side of your mouth say, well, nobody knows what's in the bill. 
you know, Republicans pass this in the dark of night, and blah, 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 and nobody knows what's in the bill. And then out of the other side of your mouth say, oh, the bill's going to be terrible for farmers, and it's going to create debt, and it's going to create deficits, and it's bad for the middle class, and it's bad for small businesses, blah, 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 blah. How can you say both things at the same time with a straight face? Either you know what's in the bill or you don't know what's in the bill. And maybe it doesn't even matter. I, I, I think that's the point. It doesn't even matter what's in the bill. Doesn't matter really what's in the bill. For the partisan talking points that we're hearing from Heidi Heitkamp and her various political supporters, doesn't matter what's in the bill. The only thing that matters it's an it's an inflection point. It is a moment where they can try to create a certain perception about the bill, and they campaign against that perception. And to be honest with you, I don't think Heidi Heitkamp really wants to campaign against this tax bill. I think that Democrats, I think she was told from on high through her party's leadership that she was going to be a no vote, that she couldn't cross the aisle because Democrats wanted to be able to say that it was a strictly partisan bill in the Senate, at least. They wanted to say that it was a strictly partisan bill. And so they told her which way to vote. And now she has to defend it. Now she has to deploy her mouthpieces. Now she has to be out there demagoguing this bill. Because she has to create, make it, turn it into something that North Dakotans perceive as worthy of voting against. And it's going to be a tough sell. Because I think there's going to be a lot of North Dakotans. North Dakota's a very entrepreneurial state. North Dakota is a very small business oriented state. Right? We're not, we're not, so, we don't have a lot of, you know, giant businesses like, you know, Manhattan or California or any of these places. North Dakota's very small business, very independent, entrepreneurial state. And the tax bill is going to be great for those sorts of businesses. I mean, look at look at how far down, look at how tenuous the connections Democrats have to make. When you're hearing the North Dakota Farmers Union out talking about it, you're hearing Aaron Crowder out talking about it. They're making this very tenuous connection between the debt and deficit that this tax cuts are su- supposedly going to create if we believe it. And again, I don't think we should. But they're making this very tenuous connection between what they're assuming will be the impact of debt and deficit and then the assumption that that is going to be made up of on the back of the farm programs that's the best they can do that's the best argument they have and it doesn't stand up to good scrutiny all right uh attorney david chapman's going to be on next we're going to talk about the latest on trump's travel ban 701-293-9000-888-970-9329 email talk at wday.com hour two coming up don't go away Welcome back, Rob Report 970 WDY AM 93.1 FM, hour two. 701 293 9000, that's your local number, 888 that's toll free. You can email in to talk at WDY.com or, uh, you know, send me tweets at Rob Port. All right, the Supreme Court, now they have not ruled on the travel ban per se. Uh, what they have done is they have allowed the travel ban to take effect. That basically means that they've st- they're still going to you know hear arguments about it and, and render an opinion about its legality overall. But in the meantime, 
Trump administration can enforce it. Here to talk with me about it is Fargo-based immigration attorney David Chapman. Mr. Chapman, how are you? Good, how are you? First of all, tell us, what is the current travel ban? I mean, it's undergone multiple changes as it's been challenged various times in, in the courts. As it stands, what is it the Supreme Court is saying that the Trump administration can enforce at this point? Well, essentially, it adds in uh, other countries to the ban at this point. The old ban covered certain countries, which it was argued were uh, was essentially a ban on religious uh, people from Muslim countries coming into the country. Uh, this travel ban added, or travel restriction really, added uh, North Korea, and it also added in Venezuelan government officials. So those individuals are not allowed to get uh, visas to come into the country, but once again, there is discretion on the part of the consulate to issue those visas. So, so let's say, just, just as, a, as, as a practical example, let's say I'm in Iran, and mm-hmm. I want to travel from Iran to the United States. Obviously, this policy says I can't do that, but is there still a way I could get in? I mean, there is some discretion here where I can, I guess, make an application, and maybe there's some discretion where they can allow me in anyway? Yes, there's a waiver process through the consular officials through the Department of State to actually grant uh, a visa to come into the country. And that actually is one of the uh, things that was discussed in the Maryland District Court decision uh, in that the plaintiffs out there who argued for an injunction said basically that the president was rewriting immigration law. Right. Okay. So essentially as it stands now, the the initial problem was that the – travel ban targeted or was perceived as targeted mostly like like muslim majority countries um right and so basically the trump administration got around that argument by adding in some countries that weren't necessarily muslim majority like north korea like venezuela places like that uh, right. so that's essentially saying it's not really about religion it's about the fact that these are places that you know so, sort of rogue regimes not very nice places and that don't have very good, you know, right. good control over their own security. And so we want to, you know, restrict people traveling into our country from these dangerous places. Is that fair? That's correct. Yeah. So as a practical matter, how is this impacting immigration in the United States now? I, you know, we're, we're hearing all sorts of reports that, um, you know, immigration is up, immigration is down. As a practical matter, has this had an impact on people trying to come into our area? Um, not that I've seen, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know the actual statistical numbers as to whether or not it has or not. Um, but I don't think, you know, at this point in time that it's had any kind of a drastic effect on people coming into the country here. Do you think that this, I mean, the Supreme Court, obviously, they're saying that this is allowed to be enforced in the interim while they're still considering the case. I'm not an attorney, but I take that as a pretty good sign. When a court says, well, you could go ahead and do it. We're not ruling on the legality of it yet, but you could go ahead and do it. That, to me, seems an indication that they're probably going to side with it. Um, well, it's a preliminary action by the Supreme Court. They have not considered the case on the merits, so I wouldn't want to second-guess the justices in terms of how they would rule on the case. But you are correct in that it is a good sign. Because in order to get a stay of an injunction, 
you have to prove essentially the same thing that you have to prove to get the injunction. So the plaintiffs proved to the district courts that they had a substantial likelihood of success on the merits, whereas now the government before the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court is now saying uh, in both of the cases, the Hawaii case and the Fourth Circuit Maryland case, uh, one was uh, a stay was requested from Justice Kennedy and one a stay was requested from the Chief Justice. Uh, they both referred them to the full court, and seven of the nine justices said that the government had shown a substantial likelihood that they would succeed on the merits and that the president's travel uh, restrictions would go into force and that they were lawful. Yeah, we saw that, I, I guess, a, a more recent example impacting here in North Dakota, obviously a much different situation, but with the Dakota Access Pipeline. Again and again, we saw requests for injunctions to stop construction and then ultimately to also stop the flow of oil through the pipeline and the judge never issued them and time and again the judge said it was essentially i I think saying you know based on what i know now you're probably not going to succeed in court therefore i'm not going to hold up you know uh construction and this seems to be like the supreme court basically saying we think on the merits of the case that you're probably going to lose so we're not going to issue the injunction uh, that said, we have still yet to, to, to fully you know, rule on, on the merits of the case. Is that, that fair? That, that's, that's where we stand now? Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interim decision, but that would be correct. They, they've carried the burden at this interim stage, yes. What about the impact? Because we hear a lot about this, not necessarily that this policy specifically is going to impact a lot of people, but that America's uh, prestige or or the perception of us as a, as an open country has taken a hit on on the on the national stage, and that's impeding immig- or I, I guess inhibiting immigration or, or deterring people or, or dissuading them from from wanting to come here. Has that I mean on, on the ground as somebody who handles people coming into our country, coming into our region, uh, it, it, has that been the case? I mean, have you noticed that? What what sort of things are you hearing from people about? Because obviously this you know this immigration issue. You know, Donald Trump campaigned on it. We've had a huge national debate on this for years now. Has that impacted people's decision on whether or not they want to come to the United States? Um, that's a good question. I have not personally heard anything from anybody uh, regarding their decisions changing because of the president's actions in these uh, executive orders. Uh, some may have. Um, and, you know, I was even in the Wall Street Journal, it was reported somebody was quoted as saying that the president was racially biased uh, because of these executive orders, where that's not the object of the executive orders at all. So I guess it depends on the particular individual, but I haven't personally heard anything. I have a question from an emailer. And by the way, if you want to join in, 701 293 email talk at wday.com. If you've got questions about this issue, talking with uh, Fargo immigration attorney David Chapman. Emailer asks, Rob, can a person from one of these countries fly into Canada and then board a plane into the U.S. without being detected? And I think even just take Canada out of that. I mean, is that possible where maybe there's another country that allows travel from I don't know, Iran or something like that, where you could fly to that country and then from that country into the United States? Um, no, because essentially what you've got at play here is if somebody goes to Canada from, say, Iran, and they are an Iranian national, uh, that's going to be detected by U.S. government officials either at the port of entry when they're trying to come into the country 
or if they try and apply for a visa. It's getting the visa that's prohibited, so they're not going to be able to go through Canada. Uh, there are certain nationals of certain countries that fall under what's called the visa waiver plan, but none of the countries that are under the executive order fall under that visa waiver. So either the visa process or the inspection at the port of entry would catch them. All right. Um, any final thoughts on this? I mean, again, obviously a hugely contentious issue. Uh, the Supreme Court seems, I, you know, to the extent that we could take the, you know, their decision on this, these injunctions, uh, take it as a as, as a forecast of where they may be at on the issue. It seems likely Trump's going to come out of this victorious. Any final thoughts? Um, I think it's a good sign, and I think it's a good sign that seven of the nine justices agreed that there should be a stay on these injunctions. Uh, and, I mean, the only two dissenters were Justice Sotomayor and Justice Ginsburg. So I think that is a good sign for the future. All right, David, thanks for your time. Thank you. That's David Chapman, Fargo-based immigration attorney. We could take your calls, questions, 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Port, 970 WDY, AM 93.1 FM, 701-293-9000, 888-970-9329, email talk at WDY.com. North Dakota, would you perceive North Dakota as a conservative state? Is that a trick question? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes. I, I, confuse, I confuse the hell out of you, I can tell. Um, yeah, you know, and, and we are. I, I think we are obviously a, a right of center state. I think when we get into the throes of partisan politics, we hear people make a lot of claims about how far right North Dakota, you know, oh, you know, we're, it's far a lot, you know. I hear a lot of people say, you know, North Dakota is this sort of extremist state or, you know, very extreme politics or what have you. And I, I don't think it's that accurate. And I don't think you have to take my word for it either. There is a new ranking out from the American Conservative Union, and they rank North Dakota's various lawmakers. They they picked out a group of bills uh, for the House and Senate uh, to essentially uh, to essentially uh, grade the, the various lawmakers on, and based on those bills, gave a ranking, gave a score to the different members of the House and Senate. Now. Overall, Republicans in North Dakota State Senate averaged a 57% ranking from the group uh, in the House chamber, which is seen as more conservative, and that's certainly how it played out in the ACU ACU rankings. uh, Republicans averaged a 65% score. Now, that's really not that conservative, especially when you compare the rankings of Republicans in uh, the House and Senate in Montana, Minnesota, and South Dakota. Republicans there all scored higher. 
And I'm wondering what that means because I, I think Republic, although you know Montana's obviously I, I think a a red state. I think South Dakota's a red state. Minnesota, not so much, but Republicans have had success in the legislature there of late. Um, but I think it's interesting because North Dakota is probably the most Republican-dominated state in our region, and yet our Republicans are scoring below in terms of you know by this conservative group are scoring below the republicans in these other states and and i think that what that tells me it tells me two things first of all i I think republicans in north dakota are a bit more moderate than maybe they get credit for i think they're a bit more moderate i think they're a bit more to the center than a lot of people want to give them credit for again i i think in in the world of partisan politics i think it is beneficial for some commentators, for for even Democrats themselves, to paint the Republican majorities as this sort of extreme, entrenched right wing majority, and I just I just don't think that's the case. And I think B, I think that feeds into why Republicans have been dominant in election cycle after election cycle after election cycle in North Dakota. I think because they are pretty centrist. I think Republicans, in a lot of ways, occupy. The center ground. Now, I think North Dakota voters overall are, are right of center voters to begin with, majority of them. But I do think Republicans occupy sort of a, a centrist ground, uh, almost to the point where it forces Democrats to the left in order to get elected. I, I, I think a lot of the Democrats you see try to win statewide elections in North Dakota. I think a lot of the Democrats you see try to win legislative races in North Dakota lose because they're running against pretty centrist incumbents and that forces them to sort of go to the left where they lose. I, I, I think I think the key to Republican success in North Dakota has been moderation. And I that that's anathema to some. I, I think some people hear that and think I'm just absolutely crazy for saying it, but I think it's the truth. Now you could probably pick an issue um, you know, North Dakota, North Dakota's elected leaders probably skew a little more socially conservative, right? I, I, I think if you're looking at that group of policies, they're probably more, maybe more conservative, uh, even than the electorate. I, I mean, Natil, I think the medical marijuana question, uh, that's one we talk about a lot on this show, but I think that indicates that, that probably the legislature is a little more socially conservative on that front than maybe the electorate overall, which voted overwhelmingly in favor of medical marijuana. Um, you know, I think some other issues, I think we're about to get a lesson on Sunday openings. You know, the legislature, the House passed the Sunday opening law. The Senate voted it down. The bill did not pass during the 2017 legislature. Now there's a, a ballot measure out there that's going to be on the ballot. I think when it's on the ballot, I think it is going to pass. And I think that's going to be another indication where lawmakers were probably a little further to the right of the ele- although. It's hard for me to even use right-left for stuff like that. I'm a conservative. I don't think the government should tell businesses when they should and shouldn't open because I'm a limited government guy. But I I guess if you want to say socially conservative, maybe lawmakers are a little further to the right of the electorate on that issue. But those are are sort of cherry-picked issues, and they get a lot of attention, and I think they skew the view. I think Republicans in North Dakota, and until you can tell me what you think, I think they're more moderate than they get credit for. I think that the general the general electorate like the 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 voters I think are definitely more moderate than they get credit for. I'm not sure if the politicians are more moderate than they get credit for. 
I think they are. I I, I think they are. I, I don't I don't think it's this entrenched right wing group of people that some want to believe. I, I think I think many of the the Republican lawmakers are quite wrong. Now, obviously, there's a spectrum within, and we have you know some legislative districts in North Dakota that are more conservative than others, and thus produce lawmakers that are more conservative than others. But on the whole, I think the re- I think the Republican majorities in North Dakota are, are pretty are pretty centrist. And I'm not and I, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you on that, especially when it comes to more local issues. I think the more local the issue, the more even statewide the issue, the more moderate yeah. our our legislators and our government officials and our voters tend to be. I, I think that's because there's there's less room for maneuvering in baloney at the local level. I there's just there's just not that's where the rubber meets the road. It's hard I think it's harder to play some of the partisan games and the theatrics we see at the national level. I think it's harder to do that at the local level, which to me is an argument for pushing more policymaking back to the local level, right? I mean, when you look at the, the likes of Nancy Pelosi, uh, you know, frankly, Donald Trump, uh, Mitch McConnell, some of these guys, when you look at some of the antics that they get up to, the less policymaking that they do, the better, I think. If we push more of that control back to the local level, I think we're better off. But anyway, it was an interesting. If you want to see the full rankings, they're again they're from the American Conservative Union. Uh, you can see them at sayanythingblog.com. Just two members of, of the legislature got the AC uh, ACU's recognition for quote unquote conservative excellence. Rick Becker and Luke of uh, Representative from Bismarck and Representative Luke Simons of Dickinson. Nobody else got that. You know, so I, I don't know. Next time you hear people, somebody griping about you know North Dakota's extremist right wing legislature. Boy, it, it ain't it, it by, by by any reasonable policy measure. It just ain't the truth. All right, more to come. We're gonna do the rundown coming up next. This is the Rob Report, nine seventy WDY AM ninety three point one FM. Don't go away. The Rob Report. The Rob Report on nine seventy WDAY. The Rundown. All right, Natil, what's out there in the headlines? Oh, there's lots of stuff in the headlines today, and we're gonna start with stuff that we can't ignore because it's everywhere. Uh, Conyers announces retirement and endorses son to succeed him. I, I'm not surprised that he's retiring. I mean, the guy is almost 90. Yeah, and he's he's um, currently hospitalized. Yeah, I I don't I don't see. I mean, for for Dem- and that's a I, that's a pretty safe Democratic district. So I don't I don't see where I mean this is low hanging fruit for Democrats, and I, I hate to say that, but that's become the calculus for a lot of this stuff. Is I mean, you look at the way. Republicans are turning around. They're doing an about face on Roy Moore. And all of a sudden, all the Republicans, you know, now that it looks like Roy Moore could pull it out down in Alabama, you know, all of a sudden, all the Republicans are sort of quietly tiptoeing back to support him because, let's let's face it, as, as disgusting and despicable as it is, political calculation matters in all this a lot more. So I, I think Conyers is stepping down because it's a safe district. He's super, super old. His time in Congress is probably coming to a close anyway, uh, and it's safe. For the same reason why uh, Democrats now feel like it's safe to be critical of Bill Clinton, right? Hillary Clinton's not on the ballot anymore. Bill Clinton certainly is not ever going to be on the ballot anymore. So it's safe. And I, I hate it, but I think that's I think that's reality. Um, about the Conyers thing specifically, don't you like that? how he's anointing his son to take his place? Like is this is he like the what 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 congressional district is it? Is he is he like the earl of his congressional district? <laughs> right? Is is this a hereditary title now? 
Well, I, I'm not necessarily sure that's that's it, but maybe his son has been, you know, looking to move into political office and currently lives in that district. Well, I, well, I, I heard there's another family member, uh, Conyers' nephew. Is it Ian Conyers? I don't know what his name is. Uh, he, he also wants the seat. So now there's like inner family squabbling over who gets the seat. Oh, good. Well, let's just pretend that whole district doesn't exist and try again later. Yeah. Well, or, or how about, you know, the, the first thing, I, I don't like it. I, I don't like the, I'm not real keen on the Bush dynasty. Uh, I wasn't, I'm not real clean, you know, keen on the, the Clinton dynasty. I, I don't, I don't like the idea that we get these powerful families that hold on to power. So I, I don't know if I hear a politician sort of trying to anoint the next generation, uh, you know, that's, that's going to be a pretty heavy mark against them. In my mind, I, I would rather mix things up, get some fresh blood in. All right, what's next? Oh, we've got a caller if you want to take a caller. Oh, yeah, let's take a caller. Go ahead, caller, what's up? Hello. Yes, sir. Um, I'm wondering, uh, didn't I hear that uh, the Republicans controlled all of both houses of Congress the last six years of Obama's term? Uh, I think it's the last, let's see, when did they take over? They took over the house in, when did they take over the house? 2010, 2012. I'm not real sure. I'm pretty sure the first four years of Obama's term was all democratic control. I don't think so. Well, I, think, I could I be wrong on the dates, but I'm both houses after his first two years. No, that's not correct. Okay. Well, no, then, I don't uh, think that's correct. Any, anyway, you hear uh, Republicans, and I think you are one of them, saying blaming Obama for uh, tripling the deficit. Yeah, I mean, the first four years of his term, we ran trillion-dollar-plus deficits. Well, in some of those years, Republicans had to sign. Well, they weren't they weren't in the majorities. I mean, we had we had a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president. And no, I mean, no, I mean no, literally I... literally at the same time, Doug, the 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 guiding economic principle because uh, to be fair, we were going through an economic collapse right now. And I think it's fair to blame at least some of that debt, some of that deficit on the collapse in revenues. Now, you know, the more fiscally responsible among us might argue maybe at a time when federal revenues are falling is the time to maybe cut back on spending. But instead, Democrats double down. So you have two things going on. You have an economic situation that is depressing revenues into the federal coffers. And then simultaneously, you have Democrats trying to implement a policy of economic stimulus through government spending. You add those two things together, you get a trillion and a half dollar deficit. Not a wise move. And it's and well, it's ironic because you, you now can't blame Obama for all the de the deficit. I'm not you, blaming you him for all of it, there, but there, he there did. A lot of Republicans. Yeah, Republicans the, like to spend too. I just think it's funny. I just all I'm saying, Doug, is I think it's funny that we're talking about we're we're, we're up in arms over a hundred and fifty billion dollar a year deficit that's supposedly going to be created by these tax returns, and I dispute that number big time. But if we're going to stipulate to it, we're up in arms about that. But yet, when Democrats wanted to try to stimulate the economy with government spending, cash for clunkers, the stimulus program, all the rest of that, and ran up trillion dollar plus deficits, nobody batted an eye. You can't have it both ways. I would say, I would say, for sure, the last 
four years of Obama's uh, term, the Republicans okay, but he's still president. But he's still the president, and he can still veto every bill that comes out of Congress, and he still writes the budget. Uh, do you deny, Doug, that Democrats tried to stimulate the economy with government spending? Well, when the Republicans controlled the last four years of the oh, Congress, that, oh, do, do, you, do you deny we're office, talking about? They had to sign whatever deficits were being created. Right, they right. And, we saw, and we saw, we saw the deficits during that time cut nearly in half, more so. We went from we went from, from from the last when Republicans took over the Congress, we saw deficits fall dramatically. Now I'm not giving Republicans deserve plenty of criticism on spending too, but we ran trillion dollar plus deficits during the first four years of the Obama administration at a time when Democrats were trying to stimulate the economy with government spending. You don't get to just ignore that now. When all of a sudden Democrats want to bring out, you know, fiscal conservatism and stand on that, they don't get to ignore their past record. Yeah, but I've heard Republicans blame Obama for all the deficits during his eight years. Well, well, I'm I'm sorry, Doug. That's not what I'm doing. All right, that's not what I'm doing. I'm not blaming blaming them for everything. I am blaming Democrats for trying to stimulate the economy with government spending at a time when federal revenues were declining, and that's just accurate. That's history. I, that's didn't fact. I hear, didn't I hear you say that Obama is completely and totally no to blame for no? You didn't hear me say that. You didn't hear me say that because I didn't say that. I heard someone, some Republicans well, say that. I, I, I don't know. I don't know, Doug. I can't, I can't, you know, account for every wild thing that you've heard. Thanks for the call. 701-293-9000, Natil, let's continue. All right. Up next, we've got more sexual assault scandals. Uh, this time it's Netflix firing the ranch star Danny Masterson. Amid rape allegations. Yeah. Uh, he you had know. been fired from the TV show. They said that Monday marked his last day of filming. I really like The Ranch as a pro- not, not that, not that, you know, not that anybody being a good artist or a good actor or, or a good author or whatever excuses them. I really like The Ranch. I think it's a good show. It's funny. It's lowbrow humor. I like it. I, I think it's pretty good stuff. Um, I like makes- Masterson's work. That being said, you know, it doesn't excuse any behavior, but I think what's interesting about this, if I read this right, that matter, it happened, I think, in the early 2000s is when it's alleged to have happened. Yep, and what makes this so interesting is that not only did it happen fairly recently, I mean, considering all of the allegations that have been coming out lately, but it includes allegations by three of his fellow Scientologists who have also accused the Church of Scientology of covering up the alleged attacks to protect yeah. its image. That's interesting. Although he's also saying that law enforcement, see, and this is this is where it's problematic too. He's also saying that law enforcement investigated. Now, I now nah, the uh, the story that the story that we have today says that he's been under investigation since at least last January, which tells okay. me that the investigation probably isn't concluded yet. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I do think it. I mean, because and, and I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't. I, I don't know. Um, I do know, I mean, the, the accusation has been public for a long time. Um, it's, it's not like they just came to light recently. They've been in the public eye for quite a while. Law enforcement has investigated. I don't know if they've reopened their investigations or what have you. Maybe there's evidence out there. I, I don't know. But here's the thing. This guy is, I mean, his career is essentially being destroyed. He's being taken off this show. And... He's not had his day in court, right? And and we've talked about this endlessly. We've talked about this 
with a lot of these other stars, and it just it makes me uncomfortable. What if you didn't do it? What if you didn't do it? You know, I I don't. I don't know. He's got he's got four separate accusers. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's fair. I I don't know. All right, what's well, it's it's so hard. It's so hard because on one hand, you know, four accusers, boy, that's pretty damning. But on the other hand, you know, law enforcement's been looking at this. If they can't find enough evidence to even press bring charges, well, and you you gotta. <sighs> You got to take into consideration that this is all taking place under the LAPD, who are notoriously slow moving. That's true, particularly with celebrities, and particularly and then you have the Scientology with, angle, and and the fact that it's a sex that it's a sex assault case makes it even more difficult. Because if things weren't if things weren't done exactly right in the beginning, the lack of physical evidence makes that very very difficult to to prosecute. Yeah. All right, let's keep going. RNC is now supporting Roy Moore in the Senate race in Alabama weeks yeah. after cutting ties with his campaign. And can yeah, I, I just say I, I want to vomit every I time just, I hear that? I, I Yeah, I alluded to it already. It's, it's depressing. It's shameful. And, and again, I, I said this. I didn't see a place in the Republican Party for Roy Moore before any of this stuff came out. I thought his positions on, on homosexuals and, and gay rights were repugnant enough. That he shouldn't be, I, I don't want him in the Republican Party. But, again, this is much like Democrats who now feel safe to, to criticize Bill Clinton. You know, Republicans don't want to lose that vote in the United States Senate. But and how I, I absolutely think, disgusting yeah, is that, that the fact that the Republican Party feels they need to hold that seat is more important than separating themselves from someone who feels that homosexuals should be punished for their sins by yeah. death and who molested young teenage girls yeah. or allegedly, uh, allegedly molested young teenage girls. You got, yeah, I, I, you know, you're preaching to the choir. On the other hand, where's the Democratic movement to remove Al, Sen- Al Franken from the Senate? Oh, I think he should be gone. Like at yeah. this point in time, we've reached the point now where... But where, 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 are the, where are the people in power for Democrats who could make that happen? Sadly... Lacking. See, and this, and therein lays the problem. And this is what we've talked about: when Republicans aren't going to hold anybody accountable, if Democrats are, and vice versa, right? They're all making this political calculation. It's not politically advantageous for us to do it. I think there is something to be said too: when a state like Alabama is willing to choose a candidate like Roy Moore over the Democrat, boy, Democrats have have alienated vast swaths of this country and i guess republicans have done the same but i don't know it's it's just it's disgusting i wish for once we could just set politics inside and said you know what roy moore is a repugnant human being and and should not be in any elected office anywhere period i agree but all right uh let's wrap it up you're listening to am 970 wday 93.1 fm this is the rob report and that's the rundown Welcome back, Rob Report, 970 WDY AM 93.1 FM. I'm just looking at Jay Thomas's Facebook page to see what he's up to today, Natil. Watching Maury. I mean, am I not supposed to say that part on the public airwaves? 
<laughs> What's he watching? He's watching Maury Povich? <laughs> yes. <laughs> he and Capel are out there right now watching more. Oh, my God. Johnson's watching now, too. I've lost them all. What, well, what's the topic today? Is it a good show? No, I don't know. Somebody's sleeping with somebody and <laughs> baby daddies. Yeah, it's always that's always what Maury's got on. I guess. <laughs> I I see. Uh, I, he he had a question up on his Facebook page. What's a great forgotten song that you don't hear anymore? It's a good question. That's a good question. Didn't get a lot of responses though. Well, I suppose it's it's hard because you know you start thinking about it and you're like, well, what what shows have what songs have I forgotten about that are really good? Yeah, I haven't. It's it's hard. It's hard to think about songs that you haven't heard in a while. Like, how do you, how do you quantify that? Like a song that you haven't heard for a while. I don't know. Seven zero one two nine three nine thousand eight 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 nine seven zero nine three two nine. Email talk at wday.com. Caller Karen, you're up. Jeb Bush would have made a much better president than Donald Trump. I don't mind. Yeah. Family members uh, running for election. Uh, Hopefully, good ones will win, and bad ones won't. I yeah, you know I and I think it's just I, I'm kind of allergic to it because, you know, part of the reason why we fought the American Revolution was to get rid of the idea of that sort of divine right to rule, right, and these this hereditary nobility. But they you know, are, I, are presented to be elected or not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's true. That's true. I, I just, I, I don't know. I, I have a problem when we get really cute with it. You know, the Kennedys, I thought we got a little carried away with it. The Clintons, the Bushes, you know, I, I think there comes a time where let's let's look elsewhere. You know, particularly, probably the most common complaint about American politics is that nothing ever really changes, right? No, nothing really changes. Well, so why would good, it should stay the same. Yeah, but is it good? Are we happy <laughs> With the way things are right now politically, I'm not so sure that we are, Karen. I don't think that whether someone is good or bad, it necessarily is because of what their last name is. Yeah, no, I mean that's that's fair. You're not wrong. I just it gives me the hives a little bit. I I when when it comes up, you know, I, it, I'm not saying I wouldn't support somebody whose parent or spouse or sibling or something like that had already been in elected office. I just to me, I, uh, you know, it's I, 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 it's a little bit of a mark against them in my I mind. I don't think that we're in danger of going back to having a king and a queen. Well, no, I don't. I'm not saying that, but I, I, th- I do think sometimes we have certain families get entrenched, and I'm not so sure that's a good thing. But well, you make a good point. Ultimately, they've got to stand for election, and if we elect them. So be it. I would I would never be in favor of a law against it. I would never be in favor of restricting their access. I think voters should be able to vote who, for who they want to vote for. But you know, it doesn't as a me personal as, dis- as it bothers you. Yeah, well, that's for sure. Thanks for the call, Karen. Appreciate it. Seven zero one two nine three nine thousand eight 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 nine seven zero nine three two nine. Email talk at wday.com. That came up during the rundown. Uh, John Con- Representative John Conyers Jr. Uh, from Michigan. Uh, stepping down and he tapped his son to basically take over his his seat and i i don't know i mean i just think that's kind of i just think that that's that's crass you know i mean he's not john conyers is not the earl of michigan's 13th district right that's not you know he's not the duke 
you know, ultimately it's up to the voters. You know, I, I don't even like the idea of someone in elected office naming a successor, period. It's not up to you. It's up to the voters. Anyway, I guess I'm old-fashioned like that. Jay Thomas Show coming up next. You can always catch me here 12 to 2 p.m. Monday through Friday, 24 hours a day, seven days a week at sayanythingblog.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again. I'll keep your eyes.